Welcome to the Advanced Air Mobility panel with my esteemed panelists today. And I'm Diane Gibbons. I advise SpaceWorks, the innovation arm of the Space Force. Who's heard of the Space Force? Okay, everyone. Who's watched the show? Not Netflix. the Netflix show, but the Netflix the show. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone watch it? No. All right. Yes, thank you for clarifying. I appreciate it. And I'm also a veteran fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. With me today are Tom, 2004 classmate from the Air Force Academy, pinning on Colonel this summer, Dash, who will teach us to properly say his name, and Anna uh, with AVSI. And so for this audience, I'm going to go over a couple TLAs, three-letter acronyms. Okay? okay, we know what AAM is, Advanced Air Mobility. We know what FAA is, Federal Aviation Administration. There are a lot of others. We know what EVTEL is, Electric Vertical Takeoff Line. Okay, so everyone knows everything in this room, which is great. So with that, I think I'll turn it over for questions. We will have audience Q&A at least the last 15 minutes, maybe a lot earlier. And wanted to ask Tom if you can tell us about AFWORKS, the PRIME program, and why we should be excited about AAM. Sure. So, hey, be excited to be here today. Uh, Tom Maher, I run the PRIME division within AFWORKS. Uh, so it's an organization within the uh, U.S. Air Force that uh, looks at emerging dual-use technology sectors and sees how can we go uh, kind of accelerate those through and provide some government resources and government backing uh, to facilitate what commercial industry is doing. Um, so Agility Prime was the first one that we started, and that's focused on, in this case, advanced air mobility, uh, the, the hybrid and electric uh, VTOL space. So some of you around earlier, uh, Mr. Jobin Bevert from uh, Joby Aviation, one of our companies, was talking with uh, Delta Airlines. So a lot of excitement around the, uh, that space and what a new kind of aviation can bring. Uh, out for across the country. And so we're trying to get involved there to see how the government can utilize these uh, vehicles and how we can also help the industry out. Uh, I think, hey, why, why are we excited about it? Um, if you look at kind of how we've, you know, big things in aviation, so you certainly had initial kind of propeller planes, you had the jet age. Um, just like we've seen with the automotive industry, the big differences that have been, been made with uh, you know, electric powertrains and how that's really shaping you know, what we see in the future of um, mobility in the, on that industry. We see a lot of similar things that we're excited about uh, from an aviation perspective. Uh, once we get those electric motors, there's a significant decrease in you know, how reliable they are, and uh, we certainly talked about this morning how quiet they can be. So that's, that can open up a lot of different opportunities within the, certainly the, the civil space of how we use them. So we're excited to see and move this uh, industry along. Thanks, Tom. And I see a couple familiar faces from this morning at Flight Club. Anyone else attend that with Joby and Delta? Well, Tom, I think we know the first rule, and, and perhaps second rule of Flight Club is you do not talk about Flight Club. It's the last panel. We're gonna have we're gonna have a good time today. All right, so let's let's move over to Dash. Can you first tell us how to properly pronounce your name, and give us a shortened, condensed version we can pronounce, and then go into your current role what AAM efforts you're focused on right now. So uh, usually I start out by asking the audience to spell my name and go through the process, but no, I'm just saying that uh, I'm Darshan Devakran, go by Dash, simple. Um, nothing to do with a call sign that I got from the Air Force, anything, it's just short for Dar Darshan. And uh, so there's no history behind it, and uh, some of the acronyms I heard for these ones are pretty bad, so it's nothing to do with that. But um, my role, uh, I'm the head of uh, Airspace Innovation and Prime Partnerships. And as uh, uh, Tom mentioned about uh, AFWORKS and uh, the Prime Division, uh, the focus for me is uh, as uh, these vehicles get 
ready to be integrated in the airspace, how do we go about with it? Uh, it from our perspective, military airspace, uh, we have a lot of complex operations going on, so we have to think about how uh, the eVTOLs, or even from the perspective of small drones, uh, all these aircrafts, how do we integrate in the airspace, and how the future of air mobility, uh, today we're talking, you know, I would say yesterday we were talking about drones, today we're talking about eVTOLs, tomorrow what else? Uh, so we cannot keep, uh, you know, going through different iterations of how the airspace is going to look. Rather, we have to think about what the future uh, airspace needs would be, what standards are required uh, for future uh, technology uh, uh, technologies to be integrated. So, uh, from small drones, we get that idea about you know where we could start scaling from uh, remotely piloted to now actually having people on board uh, with vehicles uh, we call eVTOLs and cargo and everything. So the the Innovation part here keeps changing. So when it comes to integrating these vehicles, what other sensors do we need to ensure that we have situational awareness of the vehicle? We can have maintain separation between other vehicles. Um, and then to the point of beyond visual line of sight operations, uh, weather capabilities, low altitude weather capabilities, a lot of these things are needed for uh, the technology to be successful. So as the aircrafts are you know, going through the process of certification, um, and they are ready to be integrated from uh, piloted to uh, you know unmanned autonomous operations. There's a level of scaling required, but uh, the ecosystem, or the I wouldn't say the ecosystem, but the infrastructure needed to support this is what I'm looking at, and my team is looking at. And uh, the other focus here is partnerships. Uh, as much as we use the word innovation very commonly. Uh, the challenge is that from a partnerships uh, perspective, we are not being innovative. We are creating silos, we are doing our efforts, agency level, organization level, state level, but it isn't going beyond the states, isn't going at a federal level. Each person is looking at each other for direction, but to the point that uh, do we have strong relations, strong partnerships that can actually uh, you know, accelerate this, uh, the future of air mobility, that's the key. So our partnerships with FAA, NASA, other agencies, state and local, as well as academia, how do we identify uh, the areas that we need to collaborate and then uh, find uh, pipelines to uh, either be part of their testing efforts, their research efforts, or integration efforts. And then end of the day, we are we're thinking about dual airspace. From a dual technology perspective, we're talking about dual airspace. So, so both military and civil airspace, how do we sh uh, you know, work with COTS technology, that's a commercial off-the-shelf te uh, off technologies, how do we make sure that they can operate in both airspaces so there are customers both on the military side as well as civil side. So that's the focus here, and end of the day, we uh, look at uh, bringing all our technical teams, our SMEs, our... Uh, partners across DOD to, uh, you know, uh, believe in this technology and uh, accelerate the uh, innovation space here. So I'll jump, in and kind of, I'll jump in and add a little bit onto what you mentioned, uh, all the stuff you talked about on the airspace side. It really kind of gets with what was discussed this morning of how do you make sure this is safe? Um, that's, you know, general public cares incredibly about that. We have an incredibly safe air traffic system. Uh, all the airspace integration pieces, how do you make it safe for everybody to utilize it? Tom, thank you for mentioning that because that is a common question I'm asked. Will it be safe? So thank you for addressing that if you want to expand more later. Uh, Anna, you know, with your work, 
with AVSI, the Association for Uncrewed System Vehicles International. Can you highlight or expand on the four priorities that AVSI has published for the FAA reauthorization? Uh, thanks. Um, I'll do a brief introduction as well just to get us uh, all aligned here. So I'm Anna Dietrich. I got into the fun, weird things that fly space uh, from an entrepreneurial route. So I co-founded Terrafugia out of MIT. I was the founding chief operating officer there and did that until uh, the mid-2010s. I think 2014 was when I officially stepped back. Um, now I serve the industry as an expert in certification strategy and policy and regulatory affairs, government relations for all things in the AAM umbrella. So autonomy, electrification, um, what we would consider drones all the way through air taxis and even larger applications of those technologies to things like uh, cargo feeder aircraft um, and other sort of bigger projects as well. So uh, AUVSI has really stepped into uh, the entire spectrum of autonomous and uncrewed aircraft. Um, and I think that as an advocacy industry organization, there's this, this nice little connector piece between the goals that have been shared of safety and, and kind of bringing the maximum public benefit with the sort of congressional allocation process and with the role of the FAA and all of this. And there's this great sort of convergence of uh, the industry being able to work through organizations like AUVSI to encourage Congress to push the FAA in directions where, where we all believe is the most constructive for us to go uh, societally to maximize the public benefit, to maximize safety. Um, so towards that end, we all know the FAA has, has faced some challenges recently uh, on a resources and, and leadership level. Um, and and AUVSI is really trying to get them uh, the support that they need from a resource perspective through that reauthorization, which is basically, you know, Congress holds the purse strings, right? You know, Civics 101. So that reauthorization to fund the organization can come with conditions. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So giving them an incentive to really move forward with some of the rulemakings that have been in process for a while and how to incorporate these new technologies into the existing regulatory landscape is really important. Um, and that includes regulations for eVTOL aircraft. It includes operational as well as airworthiness pieces. People often think regulation is a bad thing. In some cases, that's true, but in many cases, it's actually an opportunity to bring the lessons that have been learned through decades of experience to bear on something to maximize safety. And if we can right-size that and move quickly enough with that process, it can actually be of benefit to the industry and to the public. So really, but you know, with that regulation, we need clear timelines, um, and we really need to be doing things in a way that cements uh, you know, our, our global leadership in this space and allows our companies within the United States to innovate in a way and, and within a regulatory environment that supports that innovation. So it's a little bit of a paraphrase, but getting those regulations through the process, cutting down on the bureaucracy, making sure that they're funded appropriately to do that, and then you know asking for some accountability and some timelines to go with those processes. Thank you, Anna. I have a series of questions for them. We're going to go through one more set, but really want to hear from you. So I'll ask three more. Please come up, ask questions at once to be engaging uh, and dynamic. And so Tom, back to you. Can you share more on the importance of dual-use technology to grow an advanced mobility ecosystem and economy? Yeah, ab absolutely. So um, kind of the structure of our organizations that we looked at is where is all uh, the 
innovation and large chunks of research and development and big strides happening. And a lot of it is happening out in the commercial sector. Um, and so finding opportunities where there's good matches for where the government can help out uh, and where we can see the amazing you know, technology developments that are happening. Um, there are a lot of you know, major sectors that you're seeing this happen. So certainly the one we're talking about here is uh, advanced air mobility, uh, but a lot of the things on the software side are, are artificial intelligence advancements. You're seeing that happen right now, um, whether it's you know, uh, the next, next round of, of GPT-4. Those things are happening on the commercial side for those commercial use cases. How does the government help those things along, make sure they're safe and operated correctly? Uh, but then also, how, do they, how can they use them for good? Um, and so that's why it's incredibly important. There's tons of talent. Really, not just not just money that's being out there put in there, but a lot of talent that is working on really hard problems on the commercial sector uh, that can also be used on the government side as well. So that's why it's important. Thanks, Tom. Anna, back to you. You know, we each have different ties with AVSI. You know, Tom's been involved with different innovation events. You know, Dash is a chapter lead in North Carolina. I'm on the board and want to go back to your role there. Can you share perhaps more on other initiatives that you're working on at AVSI um, at present? Yeah, so I, I serve as a policy advisor, so you know, supporting their their full time staff and and really trying to help make sure that the the technical um, perspectives and um, needs of the membership are captured in the advocacy work that's being done, and that uh, we're serving as a a force for good from an organizational perspective and and, and as a motive force for the pieces that really need to be tackled uh, to to advance autonomy and aviation really across the entire spectrum from small UAS all the way on up. Um, so towards that end, there's there's one thing that I'm particularly proud of how it's shaping up, um, and I've gotten some great input from from a couple of the folks up here as well, and hopefully from all of you before too long, um, and also from, from the membership within AUBSI. We're calling it a Blueprint for Autonomy, and it will be debuted at Exponential, which is going to be in May in Denver this year. And what we're trying to accomplish with that is looking at, the, at this, you know, massive industry that we're really trying to build from the ground up and what are the foundational pieces that need to be in place uh, for us to have a, a strong foundation from which to build that industry on and then what are the um, you know the bricks right that need to be built on top of that foundation with really actionable specific things that all of the different stakeholders in this space can can take as go-dos and can work together on and to try to help us avoid the it almost sometimes seems like inevitable duplication of efforts that ends up happening. You end up with a lot of working groups and a lot of people talking about what should happen, um, but not a lot of implementation groups to steal Dash's phrase from earlier today. So I think that there's there's a real need for this sort of coordinated approach of how are all these pieces going to fit together? What are the pieces themselves? And what is the timing with which we need to be tackling these different pieces and, and laying these bricks so that we get to where we all want to go in the time frame that we all want to get to? So it's covering motivation. It's covering technology. It's covering airworthiness certification, operational certification, and airspace integration down to a very fine level of detail. So that's an example of one of the, the projects that I've been shepherding through they, with AUVSI and the membership. Really excited to be debuting that at Exponential, so hopefully at least a few of you will, will be there to see that as well. Um, and then, of course, there's other just sort of industry advancement efforts that I'm supporting and that AUVSI is supporting, um, including uh, the exploration of digital flight rules to enable um, you know vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle and, and vehicle-to-ATC communications without human voice communication, and then the associated elements, um, whereas you know, UAS, right, uncrewed aircraft systems, so all the other things besides the air 
aircraft that go into that system. Um, the the ground-based uh, station where the pilot is working, the communications, right? So all of those other pieces right now don't really have a nice, clear regulatory home. So working to try to uh, provide a, an appropriate means for oversight and certification of, of those pieces and, and right-size that to the given application. So those are two sort of larger, I guess three sort of larger technical initiatives that I'm spearheading right now. Thanks, Anna. You know, you mentioned uncrewed air systems. Dash, earlier you mentioned drones. So we're sort of combining two questions for you. In your perspective, what sectors would truly benefit from AAM? How should they start preparing themselves? And tied to that, what lessons from SUAS industry can help shape a better AAM future? Sure. So, you know, putting into context, you know, from the both military and civil side. Um, you know, on the civil side, uh, if you focus on uh, future of transportation, uh, Biden-Harris uh, administration uh, is looking on future of uh, transportation, which is sustainable, uh, equitable, as well as uh, create more uh, jobs. Uh, in the as well as on the military side, you know, we have the uh, we have General Brown uh, that announced the future concepts, uh, you know, uh, for. Uh, which focused on air superiority, uh, a global strike, uh, you know, global air, uh, mobility, uh, ISR, that is intelligence, uh, surveillance, reconnaissance, command and control. Uh, you know, from an air mobility perspective, there is, uh, you know, benefits on both sides. Uh, and we still are discovering uh, the use cases uh, that are going to be required for us to, um, you know, make AM profitable uh, as well as, uh, ensure the safety piece of it. So uh, when it comes to uh, use cases, we have to see uh, what are the immediate needs. Uh, so, you know, we, we know that uh, from the small drones or from AAM, we have identified use cases like uh, disaster response, medical uh, response, uh, uh, even um, uh, post-disaster uh, uh, efforts, uh, as well as public safety efforts. These are efforts uh, which... Uh, have immediate uh, need for saving lives, uh, using um, uh, innovation to speed up the process uh, and making sure that uh, uh, you know the taxpayers' money is going in the right direction. So there are uh, sectors uh, on the civil side which also appeal to the military side for logistic support, uh, quick uh, deployment, uh, as well as uh, uh, you know overall. Um, uh, sec uh, you know uh, base security efforts and stuff. There are so many of these efforts now. When it comes to use cases, there are a lot of challenges, uh, which from the small sector, uh, small US, we have identified as um, when drones came into the industry, it came as a technology rather than, uh, you know, rather than a process through, you know, how we are working our aircraft certification, airworthiness, training aspect, different aspects. It came in and started getting used as a uh, uh, as a hobbyist technology, and then from hobbyists immediately started getting uh, spread out into uh, state and local government, public safety. And during all this process, there was a challenge on how do we scale this, how do we ensure safety. Uh, and uh, it came to the point that after the technology was built, we had to figure out how we are going to utilize it and how we are going to go through the whole process and stuff. Rather, on the AM side, uh, we are tackling some of these challenges early on. Uh, aircraft certification, training aspect of it, supply chain issue, all these things are problems, uh, also autonomy piece of it. All these are, uh, you know, lessons learned from small drones that even today we haven't really solved. But when it comes to AAM, uh, it's, 
it's a lot, uh, you know, focused on uh, the traditional transportation and trying to add this to, uh, you know, uh, elevate that uh, mode of transportation that is air aircrafts, helicopters and stuff and identify use cases for short distance uh, mobility and stuff. So these are all the uh, focus areas when, you know, uh, when it comes to use cases, the lessons learned are going to be important, but also end of the day is the partnerships uh, that we can uh, uh, utilize because today uh, states are focusing on uh, the aircraft and use cases, but they're not thinking about this as a long-term goal. Uh, who's going to be the investor? How is this going to, uh, you know, be su uh, uh, sustainable in the future? So a lot of these things is where AM still is in the discovery phase. Uh, and uh, as uh, Anna mentioned, that implementation is where a uh, few states are going to be taking the lead and set the segue for others to catch up. So not all states are going to be at the same pace, but uh, there are going to be few states that are going to go ahead. Thanks, Ash. Let's transition to audience Q&A. Please come up to the mic as you have those questions. And if you can say who you are, the individual that your question is directed to, Tom, Dash, and Anna. I know Tom prefers three-part questions. As uh, If it's in the form of a statement, we can stay after. Yes. So I would say, I mean, some of the things I brought up this morning is, um, start, and we can help out with this as well. If it, it, is, you know, talking to some of those initial leading companies of, of what sort of infrastructure things they'll need, how they're going to operate, because a lot of that stuff is a little bit, is not quite defined right now. That's what, you know, the big companies like what Joby and others are, are thinking about right now of, all right, how do I minimize the, you know, the transfer time? If it, if you just have another mode of transportation, but you lose all the inefficiency by going from, uh, you know, whatever that uh, eVTOL is into the gate, into another things, people are not going to utilize it. So, Talking with the organizations that are, are designing how that flow will be will directly influence maybe how you can best lay out your new airport expansions. This is probably my recommendation there. Yeah, I'll, I'll build on that. I agree with everything that you said. Another one of the organizations that I work with is the Community Air Mobility Initiative, CAMI. I actually co-founded that a few years ago. Um, and we might have... Uh, some programming that would be really helpful to you in this phase right now so we can connect afterwards. Um, but I think just the the acknowledgement and the awareness that this is coming is huge at this point. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we're at that tipping point from like, no, this is, this is real, like this is happening. And I think that recognizing that while you're doing these kind of capital improvements is huge. So hats off to you for, for that, first of all. Um, in addition to the things that Tom mentioned, I think, you know, some of the things that I've been seeing through CAMI that airports are doing today to try to be ready for it um, is, you know, engaging with the, the OEMs and the operators that will be deploying these aircraft, but also thinking about on-site energy storage, on-site renewables generation, um, you know, working with your power grid, provide, you know, your, your electric utility to make sure that you have power supply available for electric vehicle charging. Uh, there's been a number of airports that have been coupling ground electric vehicle charging stations and the infrastructure and grid build out to do that with electric aircraft capacity. So instead of just building out your grid to be able to support ground EVs, also thinking about electric aircraft. 
Um, so, you know, and then I, I worked with one airport at, at, that really was excited about AAM and, and EV tolls. It was like, oh, we need, we need on-site renewables. So they put solar panels on the roof of everything, which then some of those might have been prime landing locations, right? So just kind of keeping these different considerations in balance, I think, is really important. Um, thinking about the implications of some of the choices that by themselves may be good, but may cut off other options down the road. Um, then there's another sort of utility question of air side or ground side, right? Like, are you going to be pre-screening passengers? Are you going to be feeding them through your existing TSA? Are you going to be dealing with commuting passengers or transfer passengers or both? We could go on and on. But I, it's a great question, and I'm really, really thrilled that you're thinking about it. I think what we'll see, so in our, in our program, one of the things that's up and coming this year is we'll actually have some of one of the leading manufacturers out on one of our bases. And so as part of that, we're doing that right now. So we are putting in, uh, you know, not from a passenger perspective, but we're putting in that ground infrastructure for charging uh, and and storage of batteries, all the different considerations that you have that come with this new type of aviation. We're, we're going to start learning those lessons and we, we, we're going to find a forum to how do we pass those on. So like she mentioned, we're going to have some that's a uh, what's called a battery energy storage system. It's basically like a Connex with a bunch of batteries and it can attach into any part of the grid, store energy, and then and then send that back out to whether it's an aircraft or a car or something like that. So we're going to start to learn those lessons early on through our program, and then our intent is that through the partnerships that DASH has built out, hey, sp spread those out to everybody that's going to start thinking about using these aircraft, because those are really key lessons you need to start baking in, as you are well aware, to the infrastructure piece to make this stuff a reality. And um, just... Uh, Specifically uh, towards the airports uh, and the community engagement piece, uh, your um, the airlines are already investing in AM. So you have one, uh, the airlines, the investors who are actually going to be using this uh, to um, enhance their transportation or uh, their transportation uh, experience for people. So that's one. You have the manufacturers who are looking to set up base. Uh, to have maintenance and other uh, operations. Then you have the passengers who are going to experience this, while as the staff also who's going to be maintaining or uh, utilizing it, and to the point that the, uh, the uh, airspace around. You have to look at the airspace aspect of this also because uh, it's not only really the infrastructure, but the airspace piece as well as the community uh, involvement. So this is where if, you're not, uh, if airports are not talking to the state DOTs, not talking to the investors, it, it's, it's where you are creating a silo. Yes, you have money or you are looking for funding to move this forward, but rather than investing early on and then uh, talking about lessons learned, it's better to uh, bring in the uh, users, the uh, investors, as well as the academia and all involved in it to put a strategic plan for your airport or even for multiple airports because your airport could be a uh, network for another airport uh, or you could be a base for multiple efforts. So those are things which you have to look at. So airports are going to play a key role, especially in the early stage. Airports are going to be identified as locations where you can uh, you know, use, uh, uh, you know, AM can be more successful before we invest in other infrastructure uh, and, in, and you know, real estate. Thank you again for that question. And if I heard you correctly, did you say it's going to double the size of the airport? Well, and what an exciting time to be in airspace and airport innovation. How many people are local here to Austin? Okay, so most of you. So there's a self-improvement meme that compares it to I-35. Treat yourself like I-35. Never stop working on yourself, no matter how inconvenient it is for everyone else. So we know the need for AAM will continue to grow. On to our next question. Thank you.
I don't know if I'll be able to give it the, the best answers. So we have, you know, we started this program to say who in the entire ecosystem is working on this. And so, for example, we have 44 different companies that have applied to come work with us. And so it's been really interesting to see the kind of technical insight. And uh, what I'll say is many people taking very different engineering approaches to get to this uh, end game and most importantly, the civil certification side. Um, so I'll try to figure out if I can summarize kind of what we've seen on kind of key key issues or challenges. Um, you know, it's early on, certainly on, you know, a lot of the you know, advancements have been happening in these electric motors. And so a lot of the companies are, are refining through how do we make sure these are very reliable because that's really the benefits of them. Not many moving parts, uh, lots of reliability. So finding uh, a really high uh, performing capabilities, but then also considering in the certification piece. So that is the key. So that's, I think that's where some of the uh, maybe the technical challenges have originated is that they're constantly iterating with the FAA on uh, what the certification path is and what sort of, well, this is not exciting, means of compliance that they're going to be able to convince the FAA that, hey, these things are safe um, because it's all new. So FAA has, you know, it's been around for a long time, incredible safety track record, but it's been based on a certain type of technologies and how air, air, people have built aircraft. Um, these are all very, very different. Uh, looking in designs and also the, the ways that they are uh, approaching safety and redundancy, and they are. Um, but I think that introduces its own technical challenges of how they handle that. Um, I'm curious to see kind of follow up. Based on that, I don't know if I fully can answer. Like, I don't have specific you know, engineering difficulties that I can call out. That's kind of what we've seen just from the, the outside perspective, uh, not actually going to do that, but you know, working with all the companies. I'll, I'll add to that a little bit if I can. I, I consult with some of the companies that he's on the outside looking at talking to. Um, <laughs> and I think there's, um, because of this regulatory uncertainty and because we're, we're kind of building the ship while we're in the middle of the ocean from the regulatory landscape perspective, right? Or the airplane on the way down, whatever metaphor you prefer, right? Um, and I, I, you know, it's creating sort of this interesting um, parallel need to parallelize things and to kind of get ahead of where you would normally tackle something in the engineering process. So normally in an ideal world, um, I mean, two engineering degrees, I used to use them all the time. You have your, all your, you have your, your regulatory landscape that drives in that plus your mission drives your requirements. The requirements drives the design. You review your the design. Yes, check. We meet the requirements. Then you go certify your design. And it's this, it can be this very linear process. We're now at the point where we don't know what the regulatory requirements are. So there's this recursiveness to the process, which is, I think, driving both the FAA and these companies absolutely up the wall. Because it's like, well, we don't really know what it is we're trying to regulate, but we don't know, we can't finalize that because we don't know what the regulations are, but we don't really know what we're trying to regulate. So we're trying... The companies are in this position of having to take the risk of rework and recursive design and move forward with their technology development with a significant amount of uncertainty in terms of what is the regulatory landscape into which they are going to be dropping this product. And that is really driving a lot of the uncertainty in the industry. You've always had uncertainty of we don't quite know how long this is going to take or maybe we'll learn something in testing that will require us to do some redesign. Now you still have those risks, but you also have the risk of like the fundamental regulatory landscape in which I'm going to be entering this product into service may change. And that's this whole other layer of like possible recursion that people have to deal with. Um, 
we're also seeing companies, you know, parallelize certification efforts and design work to the point where they may have already, you know, filed certification plans on a product that they haven't tested a full-size prototype of yet. Right. So like that's from a traditional aviation industry perspective, that's absolute insanity. Right. <laughs> so, but because the timelines are so long and because this is a, you know, VC driven field, people are trying to get creative and not cut corners in safety, but cut the timing out of it by doing things at risk on top of each other that you would normally do in series. So it's a really interesting, like dynamic mashup of regulatory evolution, technology development, and those two things kind of co-creating each other as we go. And if it all works, we'll come out the end with innovation and regulations to support them kind of all in the same time. If it doesn't, we're going to see a lot of having to go back to the beginning, which could break some of these organizations, frankly. So it's 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 a whole new way to think about systems engineering. So so basically to summarize this, I would say that uh, the companies that are working on this um, have investors to satisfy. So it's changing because more funding requires bringing in new innovation and trying to create iterations of those innovation, satisfy FAA, that is uh, the other side, the other customers like DOD, their needs uh, and those things. So, you know, it's like uh, your question on challenges, unless we maintain a balance uh, where we have standards and policies that uh, define what uh, AAM aircrafts should look like, this is just, uh, we're going to be having every year other challenges because Companies are not going to stop innovating, and neither are the engineers going to stop innovating. Uh, so this is where uh, challenges is going to be a part of parcel. You know, over 100 years of manned aviation, we still are dealing with challenges on the manned side. So the, we are, and we are just very young into this. So uh, everything is a challenge from our side, uh, you know, but from a company perspective, uh, it's just innovation, we call it. Not everything is a challenge. We try to make things easy. That's not a good tagline, Dash. I appreciate it, Cassandra. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes our questions. I'm um, kidding. Please, please ask your question. <laughs> please ask your question. <laughs> so short answer is yes. Because you, you touched on it. Um, key piece, uh, we can do all we want on the technology development side, that's great. But if you don't get public acceptance and show like, hey, how is this, how is this safe and interesting and something that I want to do? One, people won't pay for it. And two, they won't trust it and they'll say, hey, get that stuff out of here. Uh, and so that piece is actually maybe even more important than the technology development side because they'll get there. But getting people to trust it and buy into it is even more important. So how do we do that? And we can talk afterwards. Uh, at the end of the day, we need to have, uh, you know, vehicle manufacturers that, you know, have the the aircraft ready and they can get them there and, and participate. And so I think, I think there's certainly some, some interest. Um, and so we'll talk and see how we can, uh, you know, connect the right folks uh, to, to make that happen. Sure. And this is where uh, my role uh, comes in. And I, I work with state agencies as well as local uh, communities to see where we can uh, have that commercial viability piece. Uh, you know, it's like we can do testing in our bases, but from a public acceptance piece, we can just tell you it's been tested and it's great. Uh, no, but we would love to see that happening. And But that is an effort uh, more on the state side on uh, how to put that together because we won't, uh, you know, it's like we don't own the eVTOLs and we will be coming and flying these things. It is the companies that need to see value in where they are going to be flying. Uh, I think we are past those demo stages where, you know, uh, we, you know, you know, the small drones, uh, if you remember, there was a whole phase of demonstrations all across the nation. There's to be demo here, demo there. And, and there was no actual 
uh, ROI after that because state agencies would love to see it, but can they buy it? No, they didn't have the funding at that point, but they just would love to see it because they would get uh, buy-in from their leadership. So uh, from a company's perspective, uh, it's important to make sure that you know that piece of you know if next year you put together a demonstration what is the goal after that uh, is there going to be actual applications uh, investors is there going to be use cases there because that will motivate not just one company but multiple companies to work towards it so this is where uh, we get so many organizations and so many states coming forward and saying they want to do uh, you know put together a demo or they want to bring a company you know like joby lift and all these companies down there but the, uh, from a, when we talk to the companies, they get invited by the Prince of Dubai to come down fully, you know, in, in a gold aircraft if you want. Uh, why would you <laughs> transport this? Uh, so it's just that the uh, important part is uh, uh, it's not like just putting it in your suitcase and taking it away. There's a lot of planning in this involved. And Dash, uh, can you share with Dan and all of us, again, your very long job title? <laughs> Go ahead. So not to minimize the amount of work, it's clearly a, a large effort to, to organize a, a flight demonstration. Um, but I, I will say that there are um, there are EVTOL OEMs out there that are looking for their, um, not necessarily their launch cities at this point, but their second round cities. And so you and the airports guy should make sure that you talk. I don't <laughs> he left. That's too bad. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I think if, if we're, um, if, if we can create um, a, a value case where it's not just the demo, right? It's like we are building um an entry into service model where we have airport access, we have a couple of other vertiport locations identified to have an actual network in place. We have, um, and I agree, like this is a great venue to try to build that ground root support for it. But if it's if it's really, this is an ecosystem that we're creating and there's a market pull for it. And when we have cooperation of the airport and we have a cooperation of a handful of landing locations in, in downtown or in other areas of interest, that's when it starts to really be compelling for an OEM operator to start looking at, at Austin as a, um, as a, I would say like a secondary launch city. So I think the ship has sailed on the launch cities, frankly, but, but you, you know, you also have the advantage of you're not likely to have icing conditions here on a regular basis. And right, like there's, there's all kinds of other pieces that could come together to make this an attractive location to do some of that work. Um, Cami, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we don't, we're an educational 501c3 nonprofit, so we don't do any government advocacy. We don't do any, like, industry, like, marketing for them. But what we do is convene um, stakeholders, and we, and we explicitly have as our mission to educate state and local decision makers. So there might be a role for Cami in kind of providing some of that education and some of that convening. We have membership across the entire stakeholder spectrum, um, including OEMs and including airports and including cities and states, state DOTs. So um, there might be an opportunity for some collaboration there too. Thank you. I think we'll do another quick round of questions if there are not any more from the audience and then we'll probably end a few minutes early, if that sounds good to you, because we know happy hours next uh, after this. All right, so Tom, we'll just go through quickly. So Tom, are there any you know, relevant milestones you'd like to share and or looking forward timelines that may be relevant to this audience? Yeah, I think there, so there's a lot of upcoming things that you'll, 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 you'll see over this next year. Uh, I think the important thing, I mean, certainly for the folks in this crowd probably know, like, 
these things are out there flying. Like the companies are really moving quick as as they can to try to get to market. Um, I mean, most of them have said, "Hey, they're shooting for you know, initial certification you know, towards the end of 2024 and to start commercial operations out in 2025." So that means they are doing a lot of work right now. They are testing incredible amounts uh, out their facilities. You'll start to see it more publicly as they uh, they move out. So, for example, we we are going to have. Um, you know, one of our major manufacturers out to have aircraft on on the ramp at one of our Air, uh, Air Force bases, government facilities, with Air Force pilots flying them around with the, with the contractor team. So we're incredibly excited to do that. That means all the like I mentioned, the groundwork is starting now. So we're laying the infrastructure. We'll have our uh, pilots out to get uh, training actually next month. Um, so those are big things for us that will help. You know, build that that uh, you know that public confidence on hey we're out there we're in these things we're we're getting the approvals on them uh, to help them move forward so that's the big thing coming up uh, over the, this next year we're excited to see these uh, companies progress thanks tom anna over to you you know you've mentioned cami uh, earlier and is there anything more you'd like to share about what you're doing there relevant to this audience and then any other commercial efforts or policy efforts you'd like to highlight today well, I, I think I managed to sneak in enough about Cami with some of the questions that were asked, which I really appreciate. Um, but, you know, like, like I said, it is a, a educational nonprofit. I've co-founded it with Yolanka Wolf, uh, who's a, she comes from a, a lawyer, legal background. I come from the engineering background. So it's a really nice partnership um, to support state DOTs, city planners, airports, local decision makers with just really what is this? You know, how do you spell eVTOL? What, what are we looking at here from a societal integration perspective? How do we maximize the long-term public good that we stand to get from this new technology? Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, I something that is very close to my heart of like technology in and of itself is often neutral. How do we make it good has to do with how do we use it and how do we integrate it into our daily lives. So that's, that's Cami. Um, in terms of other things that I'm involved with, I, I spend a lot of time working at an industry level, both with the associations, but also with standards development. So uh, one of the things that's really uh, powerful about the aviation industry in general is that we have a very robust uh, ecosystem of standards development organizations. So that's your SAEs, your ASTMs, your RTCAs, and those are groups of industry subject matter experts that come together to write down what they see as the best practice, what they see as the means of compliance for the rules, like how technically are we actually going to do this and what specifically is the bar that we should hold the system to. Um, and that's a, it's, you know, by nature a very messy process, but I think coming to those consensus-driven uh, requirements and working with the regulator to, to get acceptance of those. Um, has the potential to really move that pace of, of regulation and, and requirements definition forward faster than, than we would otherwise see um, and to bring the best practices from what is otherwise a very highly competitive industry into the same room and, and get them all kind of to co-create together. So it was kind of the other parcel of work that I do, which I just wanted to get out there. Because if you're still here at this time on a Thursday afternoon, you might be somebody that wants to turn up to one of those SDO meetings. So <laughs> um, it's, it's a really neat aspect of the industry. Thank you, and it looks like we have another question. If you could share your name, where you went to undergrad, and who your question is directed towards. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the the leading ones that are out there, so Joby and Archer, all their current tracks that they, they were shooting for is, you know, operations in 25, commercial operations. So that's civil certification, you know, end of 24, early 25, and commercial operations, 2025. And, and those will be, like, like Anna mentioned, those will be in, in initial markets because just like um, they are rapidly going through the development, you know, they're scaling up. Those, those major ones are scaling up their production capabilities. 
as they start to get some of their first conforming systems that they can, FAA can go say, yep, that's a conformed aircraft, let's go certify that thing. Um, so the, those things are really running in parallel right, right now. Uh, be able to start ramping up and get those through that certification. So um, that's that's the that's the barrier. Can they get to that acceptable level on the safety side? Get through the FAA certification, and get into the market. So right now they're shooting for 25. And there's there's the exciting thing about this this time uh, with the market is that there's multiple multiple horses in the race right now. So it's not just all on one. There are several that are are moving fairly quickly. <laughs> no. So let me put it this way. Um, your, uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, as a personal transportation, that's a long way to go. Uh, you have to think about is, if are you a good driver first? Uh, you know, if you cannot, uh, you know, in the current tra uh, traffic and all this driving is still a problem. So as a personal transportation, uh, we're going to take. It's going to take long time uh, for that to happen. Uh, you know, it's like. Is luxury more important than emergency response, disaster response? Yeah, uh, no. So, you know, there are levels where uh, people have started investing in personal transportation uh, and um, are waiting for their vehicle uh, to be sent to their home and stuff. That'll be great. Uh, hope it does not just sit in the garage for quite some time because there is certain uh, policies, you know, when it comes to policies, even from an FA perspective, as a personal transportation, uh, there's a lot of safety case. Uh, today, if you want to be a drone pilot, it's just a part 107. But is that safety enough? No. Uh, there's a lot of other things. Well, that's that why we need put. autonomy, Dash. Exactly, autonomy. So by the time we see as autonomy scales, I think personal transportation, we'll see more. But uh, there's so many other technologies that are uh, and softwares and uh, areas that still need to be uh, you know, to need to be worked on before uh, personal transportation is going to become, uh, uh, you know, a reality. So we will see autonomous vehicles on ground uh, beyond before we see aerial, maybe or maybe not. Uh, again, each transportation has its own challenges to overcome and uh, different regulatory uh, challenges. You meant transportation as a service, right? Not like I'm going to go buy one of these and stick it in my garage. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what I, that's what I answered. So. Yeah, I was gonna say because like, I agree with both of you, but they're very different questions. Um, yeah, so I, I think I'm probably not quite as optimistic as Tom in terms of when I think this is gonna actually be like a daily occurrence. Um, I think we'll get through some initial entry into service. Like I don't want to call them stunts, but like isolated successes that are, you know, around that timing. And then I think it won't be normalized until closer to 2030. Um, I, but it's maybe a splitting hairs in terms of what that distinction looks like, right? Like if you can do the operation with, uh, you know, an airworthy aircraft that has some parcel of exemptions that go with it to enable these operations, you're still doing the operations, right? I don't know if it matters, but I think from a normalized, like this is just part of the fabric of our airspace and part of our regulatory landscape, it's going to take longer than that. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't have, you know, declare victory here, do it for the Olympics there, right? Like we will be able to start. And I think there's a lot of value to that. So I don't want to discourage that. I think those initial entry into service kind of one-off success stories of, hey, we tried it, it worked. We learned all of these things. Um, you know, it's all the unknown unknowns that are going to be problematic for the industry, right? So the sooner we can start in a contained way and start uncovering those and solving those challenges, the sooner we'll get to that sort of more normalized, more widespread use case. 
Yeah, I think you brought up a good point is, is the, the learning part of it. So that's why we want to get them out there and our folks flying them, learn how the maintenance works, learn how, how does the charging really work. I mean, what, is it, how, what are all the considerations you have to do to operate them? Uh, there's going to be a lot of learning on the, on the government side and a lot of learning certainly on the company side because it gives them an opportunity to start to exercise that before then they get to market and, and do those kind of initial operations. Yeah. Thank you for the great question. Thank you, Tom. You know, we want to thank you for your attendance today. We'll stick around for a few minutes after. want to thank the South by Southwest crew, AV crew, everyone. Thank you for an engaging panel, and enjoy the rest of South by Southwest and Austin. Will you please join me in thanking this panel? Thank you.